Thanks, Mitchell. Hey, good morning. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Journey Church. It's good to, to see you this morning. Happy Mother's Day to you this morning. As I was preparing this week, sometimes the passages just line up, and I was thinking, man, a, a great Mother's Day message right out of John 13 where Jesus predicts his betrayal. So, you know, sometimes it doesn't all line up perfectly, but, but here we are this morning. Um, we find ourselves in John chapter 13, really at, in some ways, not like numerically necessarily, but at, a, at the halfway point of John's gospel. And I'm, what I mean by that is that the first half of his gospel is all about this, what we've been talking about, coming and seeing, like getting an idea of who Jesus is. And then we're talking about come and, and believe, like putting our faith, hope, and trust in him. That was what Jesus was doing as he was walking on earth, as he was moving about and, and demonstrating who he was and calling people to follow him. And, and then that's where we find ourselves now in this second half of, of John's gospel. It's, it's what we're talking about is when we say come and, and follow. Where Jesus is, is no longer inviting people to believe, although that the invitation is still always there. Now he's speaking specifically, especially for the next four chapters, to his disciples. Come and, and follow me. Follow me to the cross, but follow me beyond the cross as well. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, kind of in the middle of John chapter 13. And if you were here last week, you know that, that Jesus set the stage for everything that he was going to say. He set the stage for everything that he was going to say that night to his disciples and everything he was going to do the next day for his disciples and for us and for everything that he would be asking them to do in the days, weeks, months, years, and lifetime ahead. All of that was set on, the, on this night with an object lesson. And if you were here last week, you know that that object lesson, it was foot washing, right? Something that for us just maybe sounds a little bit uh, archaic, a little bit disgusting, and yet this is what Jesus says. He says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. This was a, a beatitude that he, he would give at the end where he says, blessed are those who know these things and do them. He says, now that, the, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And a few, uh, it was probably almost a year ago, we did a series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are found in Mark, or sorry, in Matthew chapter 5. And, and I feel like maybe the disciples, when after Jesus washed their feet, and after he says to them, if, if, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I think the disciples were likely pretty surprised by what Jesus had said to them. Pretty surprised because they had been expecting a Messiah who would come in and, and defeat those who were oppressing them, who would set them free from, from the, the slavery, in a sense, that they were experiencing under the oppression of, of Rome. They were expecting someone who would come in and, and win the war and, and fight the battle for them. But what we see in this powerful moment, and that's why I'm, I'm kind of bringing us back to it before we move forward, is what we see in this powerful moment when Jesus wash the feet of the disciples, was that God was, was telling us that when he was going to come and, and create and, and bring in a new king, when he was going to come and, and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, he wouldn't do that by sending a warrior. He actually did that by sending a foot washer. You see, this was the king who would save the world. And likewise, in a few chapters, Jesus is going to say, just as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And he would send them out, not as, as warriors, but he would send them out as foot washers. 
And as you, as we'll see, and, and I think this is the significance of this moment, is that, is that Jesus was establishing almost a, a strategy of how we, he would accomplish the Father's purpose on earth as, as it is in heaven beyond his life and beyond his death and beyond his resurrection. Now this moment for the disciples, it was a, it was a bonding moment between them and Jesus. I don't know if you could picture that, what that would be like to have someone wash your feet. It probably would feel awkward for us. But in this moment, because of this message for Jesus and his disciples, it was this bonding moment that would change their lives in a lot of ways. And yet for one of them, what we'll see today is that it was actually a a breaking point. So this morning, if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open to John chapter 13. We're going to read verses 18 to 30 this morning. If you didn't happen to bring a Bible, the words will be up on the screen behind me. But here's what it says in John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas and the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what are you about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought he was, Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or go give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus shares... Uh, a meal with his disciples. And this, this meal, it's, it's, it was a significant meal for him to share with his disciples. It wasn't like Jesus and, the, and his friends were making a run to, to Taco Bell or, or to McDonald's. This was of significance for them. To share a meal in this way, it actually meant to share a pledge of, of covenant loyalty. Now last week we talked about how this idea of love can be described as a, a rugged commitment a rugged commitment to be with, for, and then to another. And this is what this meal represented. It represented this rugged commitment. It actually reminded me of the first time that, that Natasha and I, um, when we traveled to Rwanda with our family, the first time we shared a meal with a Rwandan family in their home. There was something significant about, it, about entering into someone else's home who had very, very little to offer, and yet they offered all that they had in order for us to share a meal with them. 
It created a bond between us that although we, we rarely see them, it, it, it's a bond that, that we hold tightly in our heart even now and we can remember even to this day what the, what the food tasted like, some of the thoughts that we had as we were, as we were eating them and, and just the memory of being with this, this family. It set a, a rugged commitment of love for them and that's what was taking place here. Like this is the setting that we find ourselves in or that Jesus found himself in himself in with his disciples. And it was during this meal, this meal of, of covenant commitment, that Jesus reveals that one of his disciples would betray him. And in this moment, it, we see that the disciples are shocked. Like their eyes are, are wide open. They couldn't believe this kind of twist ending to, as Jesus was, was revealing this. And, and none of them knew who it was or, or who Jesus was talking about, but we do. Right, if we've read this story before, or if we were here last week, we know that, that Judas was the one that would betray Jesus. As we read last week, we read that it was the devil that had prompted Judas to betray, even before he arrived at dinner, that he prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Now that idea, and we talked about this just briefly last week, that idea of, of the devil prompting Judas, or the devil prompting us to do anything, can feel just a little bit hard to understand, to, to wrap our minds around, to grasp, or even to, to believe. And, and I think for us to understand, we have to understand a little bit better what, what John was saying when he said that the devil had, had prompted him. As we, when we look at that in the way that John actually writ, wrote it, it, it actually would sound better that the devil placed or, or put or even whispered this idea into Judas's heart, into the place of his deep desires in the place where his decisions would be made that the, the, the devil spoke or, or whispered or placed this idea in there. You see, when the devil prompted Judas, it wasn't like he kind of came up with a, like a little devilish voice, like, betray Jesus. That wasn't how he did it. He, in fact, what he used was the strategy and, and the means and the methods that he had been using from, from almost the very beginning. He would use lies, and he would use deception. You see, Jesus points out that this is the ways that the devil works in people. In John chapter 8, when he talked about the devil to the Jewish rulers, he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, here we see that the devil is a liar, that his language is, is deceit, his language is lying, and that he works by placing or, or whispering these deceptive ideas that would resonate with our own disordered desires. He would, he would whisper, that we talked about it last week, almost like singing to our heartstrings. I gave an example of how... If you had a grand piano here and you were to open up the, the lid and, and you were to sing the exact note of a certain string, that it would actually resonate with that string and the, that note would begin to play. And that, that's the way the devil kind of speaks into our own disordered desires, our own sin nature, the, the brokenness in us. He, he knows exactly which note to sing at, exactly which lie and deception to speak into our lives that, that we would then hold on to, that we would then maybe take in and, and let go of what we know is true 
and let go of what, what Jesus has spoken is true and then begin to replace it with this lie that has resonated with our brokenness. It's begun to make sense. We've begun to, to be able to justify it and to understand it and to let it take form as truth in our minds, replacing the truth of Christ. You see, this is the, the strategy that the enemy would use against us, and, and he does this because it works. He does this because we are susceptible. We have been, from the beginning, we've been susceptible to these kinds of this lies and, and this kind of deception. And for Judas, as we see in this story, those lies, they would eventually lead him to betray Jesus. Now, what's interesting for me, at least when I, when I read this and was paying attention to it this week, is that while Jesus wasn't surprised by the betrayal, right? He wasn't surprised by it. He actually kind of even pointed to a, a, a piece of scripture that says, he who shared my bread has turned against me. He wasn't surprised by it, but he was troubled by it. It says that it, when this took place, or just before it took place, it says Jesus was troubled in his, in his spirit. And the question is, like, why? why? If he knew this was going to happen, why did this trouble him? And, and I believe it's because Jesus, he actually, Jesus loved Judas. Jesus was ruggedly committed to be with, for, and unto Judas. Just like every other disciple, Jesus had, had chosen Judas. He had plans for Judas, and, and this was not the plan that he had for him. And I think it's important for us to understand that, that even though Judas was, was utilized in this way, Jesus didn't force Judas to fulfill the, the scripture that, that we read. He utilized the decisions that Judas had made and the place that Judas had found himself in order to accomplish the will of the Father. There's a song by Elevation Worship called Victory, and in it there's a line that says, you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good and we see that in even in this and we see it even more so maybe even more dramatically in in the cross right when Jesus would go to the cross to die on behalf of of our sin and shame and guilt the father took what was intended for evil what was intended to destroy what was intended as a an item of torture and destruction and he turned it into something that was good something that would accomplish his purpose, something that would bring glory to him and salvation to, to people. And what I think what we forget when we, when we read a story like this, when we look at a passage like this, which, to be honest, I think is placed right in the middle of John chapter 13, although John didn't use chapters, but right in between these two things we talked about last week and what we're going to talk about next week, I think John was very intentional to place it here. But we forget that Judas was, was real, like he was a, a person, that he was... In some ways, just like you and me, he had free will. He had agency. He got to make his own decisions. He wasn't a, a robot. He wasn't predetermined to be the, the bad guy in this story. In fact, Jesus had chosen him as a disciple. He followed and walked with Jesus for years. He listened to Jesus. He listened to truth. He took in the words of, of his rabbi, the words of his teacher, and yet at the same time, he was also listening to and taking in lies and deceptions. And eventually, through a series of, of decisions based on truth or deception, Judas ends up in this, this place of betrayal. 
And this is why I think it's important for us to pay attention to this part of the story. Because while Judas was the only one who would betray Jesus in this way, right? Jesus is the only one who would go to the cross. Judas was the only one who who betrayed Jesus in this way. It's important for us to pay attention and understand that because we're all just a few bad decisions away from disaster. We're all simply just a few bad decisions away from potential betrayal. And what troubled Jesus the most, I believe in in this moment, what troubled him in his soul was that he knew Judas was at a tipping point. He knew that the the lies had become so much for him and that even Jesus' offer of of a foot washing and as we read today, an offer of just a a piece of of bread, that it was too much for him. It was a tipping point that he was one decision away from giving up on Jesus and giving in to the enemy, giving in to the lies, giving in to the deception. And that's the, I think, the challenge that we can face just in in our own walk and life and in an attempt to follow Jesus is, is like Judas. We can walk with Jesus. We can listen to the words of Jesus. We can read them. They're in red in, in our Bibles, and we can try to understand them and try to follow them, and yet we're inundated with deception. We're inundated with lies and, and half-truth and, and things that would draw us away from Jesus, away from his plans for us, and would draw us into a, a place that could be disastrous for, for us, for our soul, for our family, for our community, or, or worse. And that's what troubles Jesus in this moment, is his heart for, for Judas. And then in all of this, like this whole scene, I think, was so confusing for the disciples. Right? They, they aren't totally unsure of what Jesus is even talking about. What, is, what does he even mean when he's saying these things? And, and at one point, Peter's like, he like kind of winks at, at John. It says that the, the disciple that Jesus loved, and most believe that that disciple was, was just John trying to be humble in, in a way, I guess. Um, but Peter makes a motion to him. He's like, ask, ask Jesus what he's talking about. Like, who's, who's the one? Who's the one who would betray him? And, and so in that moment, John was likely sitting right next to Jesus and leans back towards him and is like, who is it, Lord? And Jesus says, you know, it's just the one who I'm going to dip the bread in. I'm gonna, I'll give it to him. That's, that's the one. Really only saying it loud enough for, for John to hear because the rest were unaware of what Jesus was saying. And, and here's the thing about this, this piece of bread, this, this morsel in, that was dipped in, in Jesus' sauce and then and then given to Judas. Is, this was more than just a method of, of distinction. In this moment, Jesus was doing more than just simply trying to, to show John who it was that would betray him. I think that in this moment, Jesus was offering Judas a, a last second offer of grace. We've already established that this type of meal is, is a, was a significant meal that offered covenant um, commitment towards one another but but this act of of dipping bread and then offering it to someone it was even more significant than the meal it was a special offer of of deep friendship and intimacy and trust and in Jesus's dipping of of the bread and offering it to the one who would betray him he was offering a, a last second chance for grace like it's not too late. I still 
love you. You can still follow me. But what we see and what John tells us is that this, the bread was the breaking point for Judas. Jesus tells us that, that it, or John tells us that this is in the moment when he says that Satan entered into Judas. And again, that can sound kind of weird and demonic. And most scholars, when they look at this passage, they understand, they believe that it wasn't like this demonic possession that we read about in some of the other gospels where you see people falling and, and writhing and, and foaming at the mouth or what have you. Rather, this was actually John, his way of, of picturing what had just taken place. So he pictured the moment that, Jesus, that Judas gave up on Jesus. The moment that Judas stopped believing, stopped trusting, stopped following. And when he gave into the lies, and gave into the deception, and gave into the enemy. And knowing this, at this moment, Jesus says to him, he says, he simply says, what you're about to do, do quickly. Almost as if to say, okay, you've made your decision now, you need to go. And as we'll see next week, Jesus had some things he was going to say to the disciples and and in some ways, it's almost like he let Judas go because he had some more things he wanted to say to the ones who would follow him. And it's almost poetic the way that John ends this in verse 30 when he says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Like dark and light, uh, sun and, and daylight and, and nighttime. These are themes that we see throughout throughout John's gospel, and I've actually said this a, a few times in this series, but I think in this passage, in this moment, it's, it's seen clearly here that the presence of Jesus, it, it divides people. It divides people into those who would, who would move towards the light to receive its healing and its direction and its salvation and its wisdom and its grace from those who would resist the light and would move towards darkness and would remain there. And that night, Judas made his decision. In the presence of Jesus, he chose to move towards the darkness. He chose to step out into the night. And I think for me, as I, as I was looking at this passage, kind of this, I'm, I had one final thought or observation that, that stuck out with me or out at me at the end is that when Judas left out and went into the darkness and went into the night. He went alone. It's interesting. Like, nobody really seemed to care. I mean, they kind of thought, okay, maybe he was going to buy some more supplies. Maybe he's going to go give some money to the poor. But, but no one suspected anything. None of the other disciples had any idea what was going on in the mind of Judas. No one, none of, at least as far as we can tell, they kind of, you can kind of tell in some of the Gospels, they tried to, you know, hindsight's 2020. 20. Oh, this must have meant that. But, but we don't see any of the disciples, like, recognizing, man, Judas is a little bit off. Like, Judas has some weird thoughts about Jesus. About Jesus. Judas is considering some strange decisions. He's talking to some of interesting people. He is, there's, there's no concern for Judas in the, the decisions that he would make. I just found that interesting, and, and it my point is this. I wonder what role isolation played in Judas's 
choice and pathway towards betrayal. In his choice and decisions that would lead him to a place where like the desires of his heart would be antithetical to what Jesus would have him do. I mean, was he talking to anybody about what was going on in his heart? Was he, was he following Jesus with anyone? Was he, was he speaking? Was there anyone speaking truth to Judas? At the end of um, the first section of, of John Mark Comer's book, uh, Live No Lies, he, he kind of summarizes this first part. And, and it's a powerful statement that I think just read for ourselves is significant, but if we even read it over what we know and understand about, about Judas, it's, it's significant. So I want to read it to you and, and see if it resonates with you. He says, the, the devil's goal is to first isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. Specifically, he lies about who God is, who we are, and what the good life is, with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. His intent is to get us to seize autonomy from God and to redefine good and evil for ourselves, thereby leading to the ruin of our souls and society. Man, when I read that, that, I mean, it it explains a lot of what's taking place in, in our story today, in, in, what, in this passage that we're looking at today. But can I be real honest? It explains a lot of what goes on in my own heart, soul, and mind. When I it can feel like the, these deceptive thoughts or these disordered desires start to take root and start to begin to change the way that I, that I respond or I react or interact with, with people, that I would begin to change who, who I think God is or or who I think I am, like these, these thoughts, they, this resonated with, with me in, in some significant ways. And maybe they, it does with you because here's the thing that we see in this passage and in, in parts of the story, the, the gospel of Jesus, is that the enemy has a strategy. And the enemy's strategy, it's, it's isolation and it's lies. And I guess the question that I had as I thought about that was, like, do I have a strategy? Do we have a strategy? Again, like, I think the chapter 13, in some ways, it's like this is a defining moment in what Jesus is preparing his disciples for, both uh, to get through that night, to get through the next day, but then how he's going to accomplish all that he's going to accomplish through them in the days ahead. And he knows that they have an enemy that's going to be like, attacking them through lies and through deceptions and trying to help them try to talk them out of following Jesus and, and following into a, a different direction, just like he did with Judas. And I don't have time this morning to go into all the strategies, but let me just give you a, a glimpse of where we're going to be going in the next few months, I mean, or the next month or so, and then we're going to take a break in the summer. But as we go through chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, we're going to see that, that Jesus is going to be giving us a strategy for following him, a strategy to, to fight against the deception and, and against the lies of the enemy. And it's, it's really just three simple things, but three really challenging things. The first is this, to remain loving. 
We're going to see this throughout the, the, this upper room discourse that we're reading right now and that we're going to read for the next while, that Jesus is going to encourage us and challenge us and even command us to remain loving. We're going to talk about this next week. I encourage you to, to be there for that. But the second thing is the strategy would be to remain in me, to remain in Jesus. And then we would do that by simply staying attached to Jesus through the, practicing the ways of Jesus, by spending time with him, by, by being in, in the word with him. And, and there's just a whole host of ways that that can look, the ways that we can practice following Jesus. And those are things that we will be talking about and we'll be pressing into in the days ahead as well. But then the third one is shouldn't be It shouldn't be unfamiliar to us. It's that we would remain together. We say that often here, that we're following Jesus together, but we say that because that's the way we were meant to follow Jesus. That's one of the strategies. We we remain loving, we remain in Jesus, and then we remain together, following him together. And that's where we'll go as we enter into um, chapter 14, or the end of chapter 13 next week. Would you pray with me as we kind of close out of this part of the story? Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, this morning we, we recognize that there are, that we have an enemy. Sometimes we don't want to, to talk about that. We don't want to recognize that. We don't want to um, give too much credit to the enemy. And yet we, we just see in, in, in this passage, Lord, how powerful the enemy's lies and deception can be. How someone who, who followed you for so long and so closely could yet be turned to betray you. And Jesus, we just know as we seek to follow you that the, the lies that we hear in our minds and our hearts and our souls, the deceptions of the enemy, the ways that he would lure us away from you and, and into the, the places and spaces of our disordered desires, Lord, that we know that that is powerful. And so we just ask for strength today. We ask for truth today. We ask for your Holy Spirit today. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to remain loving and to remain in your love, Lord, that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to remain in you and, and attach to you, that you would give us the, the strength and the willingness to put in those things into practice that would keep us closely attached to you. And Lord, I just ask that as we gather in this space together, you would help us to remain together. Lord, that you would build unity in your body, that you would um, attach us, just like our, our, our muscles are, are attached by ligaments and bones. Lord, would you, would you attach us together, hold us tightly together as we seek to follow you today. We thank you, Jesus, for setting this example for us, for walking with us and never giving up on us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.